Last week I shared a message called Reset, and uh, sorry, my <laughs> I touched a button on my iPad and everything went whoop, um, called Reset, and this week I'm going to continue the message on Reset. This is the second part, and the message is Reset, that I may know Him more, that I may know Him more. And I want to start by reviewing what we talked about last week. So if you were here, you probably took notes on this, right, because all of you in this room are really avid, intense note-takers, aren't you? But for those of you who didn't, here's what we, what we talked about last week. I'll review it really quickly. First of all, our starting text today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and 10 and 11. If you'll look on the screen with me, we'll go through it. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, said this, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. Y'all know what dung is, right? Consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Verse 10. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, I shared these three points last week, and I had some other texts of Scripture, but the first point I shared last week is that if you are a Christian, and I'm going to qualify what I mean by that, because... Probably 70% of Americans say when they're interviewed that they're Christians. And we know that's not true. You're either really a Christian or you are what's known as a nominal Christian. A nominal Christian means a Christian in name only. Okay, so a real Christian is a person that's been born of God, that knows God and knows Jesus Christ in a real and personal way, as though God is really a person not a religion or an ideology, not a philosophy, but an actual person. A real Christian is someone who knows they're forgiven. They understand that they are a child of God. And the scripture teaches they've been born from above or born again or born within by the spirit of God. God has regenerated them from within. And now, think about this, now God's presence, God's spirit lives inside of a person who is a real Christian. Okay, that's what a real Christian is. And then what begins to happen is because the Spirit of Christ Himself is within that person, the Spirit of Christ within them begins to work the nature, the character, and the attributes of God into that person and change their character and nature and attributes so that they, over the course of a lifetime, reflect who God is more and more. Does that make sense? That's a Christian. That was a weak yeah. Okay, so if you are a Christian, knowing Jesus Christ is goal number one in our lives. That is the number one thing that we're pursuing. Not, not just what we can do for God, not just a, you know, getting a free ticket to heaven. Have you, ever, have you ever noticed that a lot of times... Churches emphasize, and, and hear me on this for a second, but churches emphasize salvation, meaning 
Just get saved, just get born again, and get to heaven when you die. And that will be the focus of the message. The message is you just need to believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for you, that he rose from the dead bodily. You need to confess that with your mouth, and then you'll be born again so that when you die, you'll go to heaven. And when we make that the whole message, we miss a huge part of the New Testament because the reality is, is the apostles didn't preach that message. They preach the reality of God's presence coming into a person and bringing the kingdom into them so that they can begin to live now as God called them to live. And when they die on earth, they'll be in the presence of God, right? So this isn't just, you know, I got two tickets to paradise. No, it's not a ticket to heaven. Most of you in this room that are younger wouldn't even know that song, but those of you that do, okay. So knowing Jesus Christ is goal number one. Number two, we love God when we know and believe He loved us first. We talked about that last week, right? So we, we love God because we've been convinced of something. We're loved. And we know it. We know it in our bones. We know it in our marrow. We know it deep within. We are the beloved of God. When God created everything, when He spoke and it became, when, when He spoke and all the universe, all the galaxies spun into existence, He waited until the very last day to create His greatest work, His magnum opus, His great work. And that great work was a man and a woman. Now, I want you to think about that. God values humans above the universe, above all the galaxies, above all the beauty in creation and every animal, all of it is ultimately so that he could share it with us. But then we fell and sin came in and the world got twisted and we launched off on our own, rebels against God. And that's been our story. The human story is that we're rebels and that we're broken from within and that is called sin and God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to die in our place, to take upon Himself our sin burden so that we could be reconciled to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and walk with Him for the rest of our lives and into eternity so He could share all of the universe with us. That's, that's what God's up to. He's taking us somewhere, right? When it's all said and done, everything's going to be new. And all that's broken and fallen and all of the things that have been twisted and distorted are going to be made right again. That's what he's up to with you and I. And, and so when we come to Christ and we're born of God, we begin to believe and we begin to know that we're loved. And that love, that knowing that we're loved by God, that deposit of divine love within us, that's what Romans actually teaches us, is that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That divine deposit of love begins to work into our life and give us the ability to love God and to love people, even people who don't love us back. In fact, that's actually one of the hallmarks, right? The ability to love someone who doesn't return your love. And the reason you can do that is because you're not looking to that person to be your source of love, but you're looking vertical. Because if we go vertical and that's our source, it ultimately won't matter what people out here do back toward us because our source will be God. Right? So when we know we're loved and we believe we're loved, we can love. And then we love God much when we've been forgiven much. Last week I shared 
the story in, I think it was, is it Luke's gospel? Gosh, I don't even remember what I preached last week, but the woman who washed the feet of Jesus with her tears, her hair, and perfume, uh, Jesus said of her, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. And that's a principle we see throughout Scripture. And, and Jesus wasn't ultimately saying that some people need to be forgiven more than others. I mean, in a way, He was because some of us, we, we let sin take us down darker roads than others do. But every person in this room without Christ will do and has done things you're ashamed of. I mean, if we could ultimately see and know the things that each of us did in secret, we might be shocked, but I think most of it would be like, yeah, I've done that too, right? If it all kind of came out in the open, right? And yet we know that when we realize that, even if you've grown up in a pretty good home and a pretty good background, when you really realize that there have been times in your life that you wished your sibling would die. I remember being a kid after my, my stepdad would spank me and I'd be in the room basically calling down curses on his head. Y'all remember what I'm talking about? I wish you would just die. Any of you? I know I wasn't the only one that said stuff like that. What is that? That's murder in the human heart. And so all of us are in desperate need of a Savior to take that stuff and, and, and get it out of us and renew it and give us a new nature. Amen. So if you've been forgiven much, you love much. And every one of us have been forgiven much, but many of us don't realize it. And so because we don't realize it, we don't love much in return. But when we realize what God has done for us, woo, we have this incredible capacity, right? Because God fills all those spaces in us with His love. Now, all I've done so far is review my message from last week, and I haven't even got into point number one. So here's point number one if you're a note taker. Knowing God's ways means knowing Him accurately. So if we're going to know what God's like, we have to know Him accurately. I'm going to be quoting today from a book by a man who I greatly respect. I, have, I read a, a couple of his books that I've read many times in the past during my sabbatical. I went back and I read them, and that's A.W. Tozer. And he wrote two books called The Pursuit of God and The Knowledge of the Holy that have had a profound impact on my life. And these are some quotes from The Knowledge of the Holy. And I just want you to think about these for your own life. Uh, the first quote is this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, if I was to pull you aside and ask you, without you knowing this question, if I was to say, um, what do you think is the most important thing about you? You probably wouldn't say, my thoughts about God. You'd probably be like, um, I do this job. I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a mom, I have accomplished these things in my life. Most of us would go to what we do because we define ourselves so often by what we do, not who we are in our relationships, right? And, and yet, what we think about God, here's the amazing idea here, whatever we think about God is what will form us and shape us. It's truly the most important thing about us. Because our, your, your views of God will actually affect the person you become. Whoa. Secondly, the essence of idolatry, idolatry is to make idols. 
And often what we do is we look at countries where people still make little wooden idols or metal idols and they put them up at a little altar in their, you know, in their place of residence and they bow down to them and we're just like, what is wrong with people? But we don't understand that the United States of America is an idol-producing factory maybe like no other in history. And we've learned how to cloak it and call it other things, but the reality is, is we are an idol-worshiping society. So the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Think about that. Many of us, we have ideas about God. Here's just one example. Whenever we emphasize one attribute of God at the expense of another, we make a false God. And in our time, a couple of attributes that people will emphasize at the expense of another, for instance, would be the love of God or the mercy of God. God is love, love, love. And the idea we have of love is distorted and twisted by our popular culture and our sexuality and our romantic views. And so what we think about God is this kind of ooey gooey, anything goes, go ahead, just be whoever you are because I love you and accept you. And we wrongly teach that unconditional love means God doesn't care about what you do. But when we teach that side of God without emphasizing that God is also holy, that God is an all-consuming fire, that God hates evil. When we emphasize one attribute of God at the expense of another, we twist and distort His image and we end up with a God that doesn't exist except for in our own minds. Somebody say, instead of amen, oh man. Amen. Thirdly, the idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than He is, in itself a monstrous sin and substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness. So when, when I hear people say things like, well, my God's like this. My God would never do that. My God, I'm like, well, because here's the reality. We might not realize this, but every person in this room is a theologian. Did you know that? You're a theologian. Some of you are like, I don't even know what the word means. The word theologian simply is a person who studies God, right? And so like every person in here is a philosopher. You're, you're all, you all have opinions. It doesn't matter how educated you are, how old you are. Even you ask the youngest child, the youngest child, you ask the youngest child like things like, what's the meaning of life or why are you here? And kids will come up with an answer. And the rest of us also have a view of our place in the world and why the world is, right? And it's the same way with theology. Every person in this room has an opinion about God. Even if you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, if you're a skeptic, you still have an opinion about God and you still have God's. You might not realize it, but your God could be that you worship your own thoughts, your own thinking about God. Your God might just be that you think you're smarter than God. You think you're smarter than anybody else. You think you're smarter than all the really intelligent people through history who have seen that God is real, right? That might be your God. Your God could be that you love yourself, right? That's the ultimate God of most human beings. Uh, Next, so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards decline along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. So think about that. Think about the implications. It's so important we think rightly about God. It's so important that our worship songs represent what Scriptures say about Him, that our preaching 
that our conversations with each other are not conversations and worship and preaching that distort the nature and character of God. That's why the Scripture says that not many of us should desire to be teachers. I mean, I understand something. I'm standing up here, and at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before God, and I'm going to give an account of what I have done. And I understand that more than preaching to you, I stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. I stand in the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit, and when I preach, I will give an account unto God. And if I have distorted, if I have twisted, if I have done anything that makes God look bad, the judgment upon me will be severe. So I have to take this very seriously. And I have to pray that those areas where I'm just ignorant or I haven't quite figured it out yet or I say something out of my own experience that I don't understand that God's going to correct later, I have to pray and hope that he's very merciful and it won't mess you up. Y'all got real quiet right there. Okay. Okay, I got to move on here. Point number two, the choice we face. The choice we face is we can either know his deeds his acts, his works, or we can know him. Know his ways, know his character. And what I'm going to show you in a minute is if you know him, you know his ways and you know his character, you get to do his deeds. Amen? Amen. Look at Psalm 103, verse 7. We're going to look at it in two different versions, the Christian Standard Bible and the New Living Translation. Psalm 103, verse 7. He revealed his ways to Moses his deeds to the people of Israel. Look at the um, same text in the New Living Translation. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. Okay? So I want to ask you this question. Do you want to know his deeds? Or do you want to know his ways and his character and do his deeds? Which is it? <laughs> All of it. Amen. That's right. See, the nation of Israel saw God perform amazing miracles. They saw him bring 10 plagues upon the 10 false gods of Egypt and destroy them. They saw him rescue them as a nation from Pharaoh and from Egypt, the most powerful military power on earth at that time. They saw him part the Red Sea and rescue them again. They saw him provide supernaturally for them again and again. Water from a rock, as Dominic said. Manna from heaven. Quail. Whatever their needs were, he provided. Clothing that wouldn't wear out over 40 years. Shoes that never wore out. Imagine wearing the same shoes and clothing for 40 years. I hope they had deodorant. <laughs> right? They, they saw these things. Yet, they didn't know him. The sad tragedy of looking at Israel, and this is true of a lot of the church, the sad tragedy of Israel is that God was doing all these things for them, and they just saw Him like some kind of entitlement program, like some kind of welfare program. They were just like, gimme, 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 but they didn't know Him. Moses, on the other hand, knew Him, and he knew His ways and His character, and he got to perform the deeds of God. He became the vessel. He became the one through which God parted the Red Sea. The Lord said, you know, hold out your staff. And God worked, right? He, he got to be the vessel because he understood the character and the nature of God. And what we, what we need to see in our time is that 
it's sad because I, I see many Christians who run to conferences and go to this and go to that event and they're always looking. And I'm not saying going to a conference is bad in and of itself, but I remember a period of time even a number of years ago where it seemed like so many Christians I knew were what I would call conference junkies. They were just going from one experience to another to have a manifestation, to feel something, to fall on the floor and shake, to laugh, whatever it was. They were looking for a manifestation and, and, and what they were missing was that God isn't, I'm not saying God doesn't move in places, but ultimately God isn't locational. The new covenant changed that. The Lord's not hanging out in a temple somewhere anymore. Even a temple in Moses Lake. He's not there. God's in this temple. Hello, can I speak to you? See, God moved his location to everywhere his people are. So now he lives in human temples. And he manifests himself in that way. He doesn't need a building. Look, if we're counting on God to hang out in a building because it's cool, we have the most uncool building in town. <laughs> but he's here. Because he's in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Come on. And the most wonderful thing that a Christian can have in their life is the knowledge of God. Knowing him is the greatest thing a human being can ever experience. He's the most interesting and amazing being there is. There's no one like Him. You, you could spend the rest of your life getting to know Him and you... Look, the Scripture tells us that the angels, the seraphim, when they worship Him, they cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are filled with Your glory. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth is filled with your glory. Now we see two things there. They worship God in Trinity. Holy, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We also see something else. They're not saying holy, holy, holy over and over again because they have some kind of computer chip in them and they're going, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, holy, holy. They're not doing that. They're saying holy, 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 because every time they look up back upon God, they see a new aspect of His attributes and His character that captivates them. The beauty and the glory of God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And they covered their eyes with their wings. And then, holy, holy, holy. Just think about that. Now, they look at God. Angels look at God who are perfect and pure and holy and beautiful. And we're going to look at Him and we can look at Him with the eyes of the heart now and throughout our lives see different aspects of His character and say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Amen. So the choice is clear, isn't it? To know Him more and more. Now, I did this to myself in the first service too. And uh, I'm not going to finish this message, but, so I'm going to skip around, but I want to read a text of Scripture to you. Maybe you take this text of Scripture and you go home with it, and you meditate on it, and you think on it, and you, you read it again, and you pray over it. But I'm going to tell you, this is one of the most beautiful and powerful stories in the Bible. And before I get into it, let me say this to you. Many times when we read the Bible, we see superheroes, spiritual superheroes, right? We see a Moses, we see an Elijah, we see a Paul, we see a Peter. 
And we think those people are beyond me. They're special. I can never attain to that. The spiritual life they had, I can never attain to that. But what the story of the scripture is, is actually the story that these were common people like you and I. And God did an extraordinary work in them, but they weren't special and they weren't super, superheroes and they didn't have special you know, character. In fact, most of them were knuckleheads and they messed up a lot and they sinned. Moses was a murderer. Think about that. So these were common people with common humanity who had an uncommon God and were changed by that encounter. So this story, it'll look different in your life than this. So if, so if you're like, God, I want what Moses had, God's going to say no. Let me say that again. I want what Moses had. No. God says no. Because your story is unique and the way I'm going to show myself to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the same God. I'm not going to change, but I'm going to do it in a way in your life that matches your ability to hear and experience. God communicates to each of us in our own unique language. And what I mean by that is he knows how he's wired you. He knows who you are. He's after you. He's pursuing you. And if you're a person that art and music and those things speak to you, he's going to weave his life and his love into those things. And if you're a person who's an intellectual and you encounter God that way, he's probably going to meet you on that plane to some degree. But God is going to meet you in your own unique language and way. But he is going to meet you. Don't count yourself out. Amen. Let's read this text. Exodus 33, 11 through 23. I love this story. Inside the tent of meeting, let me just say what that was. This is a tent that Moses set up. This wasn't a tabernacle. This was a, a special little tent that Moses set up outside the camp and he would go to that tent and meet with God and pray to him and worship him. And whenever Moses would go to the tent, the cloud of God's glory would come over the tent and it would be over the tent. And as the cloud of God's glory was there, God would meet with Moses and all the people inside Israel's camp would come out of their tents and they would stand at the doorway of their tent and they would look when Moses went in because they would see the glory of God. And they would just be like, whoa, he's in there with him right now. You know, it must have been pretty amazing to behold. So inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp. But the young man who assisted him, Joshua, the son of Nun, poor Joshua, he didn't have any parents. He was, sorry, Joshua, the son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. Just a quick aside, Joshua, the son of Nun, would remain behind. Think about this. Joshua was so hungry for what Moses was experiencing that he would just hang out there by the tent. He's just, you know what, even if I can just kind of rub the tent, maybe a little bit of what God was doing in Moses would happen to me. And if you know the story of Joshua, he goes on to become Moses' successor because he was willing to hang out where the presence of God was. I love that story. Still with me? Okay, so one day Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, by the way, will you look at this conversation? This is so real. Listen, God's not looking for flowery language from you when you talk to him. He's not looking for you to have like it all together, you know, some kind of curated, perfect little prayer. Yea, thus so, Lord God Almighty, yea, verily, verily, I say unto thee, I shall approach thee, yea, verily, through the blood of thy son today. Knock it off. Talk you. Be you. 
All right, sorry about that. One day Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name, and I look favorably on you. If that is true, <laughs> you, hear, you hear the, Moses is working a deal here. I love this. If that is true, that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways that I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. <laughs> that was happening a lot. Sometimes when God spoke to Moses, he would say, these people of yours. And Moses would be like, no, God, they're your people. And by the way, I just want you to know I've had that conversation about you. Okay. Amen. Amen. Okay. Verse 14, the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you've asked, for I look favorably on you and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, so God put himself in some kind of form, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind but my face will not be seen. Now, I have like nine points on this, and we're obviously not going to get there. So take the text home and think on it. But I, I just want to point out a few things. First of all, I want you to notice that it says Moses and God were friends, face-to-face -face friends. But even in that face-to-face -face friendship, God had to cloak himself. He couldn't show his full glory. He couldn't show his full face. Maybe he was veiled. Maybe he, you know, made sure that Moses didn't see his full face because if he had, he would be consumed. But here's what the beautiful thing is. By the way, getting close to God. See, sometimes we read the Bible and we see like in the Old Testament, people dying and God, like his wrath coming out. And we, we see people doing things they shouldn't do. And we were like, what's up with God in the Old Testament? Why isn't he like that in the New Testament? Well, you probably need to read your New Testament a little closer because he's a lot more like that than you may realize. And it's not that he's like anything. It's that we are people who shouldn't come into the holy, holy face of God in ways that he hasn't prescribed. Let's put it this way. If you were to be launched right now in a rocket to the sun and you got up, I don't know how far out from the sun it would be before you would be consumed, but there would come a point where you would actually be consumed. There'd be nothing left of you. You'd be incinerated, right? That's how God is. God is more brilliant, more, he's hotter and more powerful 
than the son, right? And so we have to understand that about him. It's not that he's a meanie, it's that he's holy. He says of himself, I am an all-consuming fire. Whew, we better hold that with respect, right? But here's the beautiful thing. In the new covenant, Jesus told us in John 15, I'm not gonna read it, but Jesus told us in John 15, I call you friends. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. So here's the beautiful thing. What Moses enjoyed as a privilege that very few Old Testament characters did, all of God's children can now enjoy in a face-to-face friendship with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Secondly, subpoint of that point, your father, like with Moses, is waiting to meet you in secret as a father and a friend. Moses met him at the tent of meeting. Jesus in Matthew 6, 6 says this, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I wanna ask you a question. Do you have a secret life with God? Do you have a secret place with him? Do you know him? Do you spend time with him alone? For me, I, I, you know, I, I have a couple places. I have my bedroom at home and I have a farmer's road that I go walk down. He's given me permission to walk through his cornfields, right? And that's my secret place. I'm not telling you that so you'll go, whoa, you're so spiritual. I'm telling you that because your, your secret place can look different than mine. But do you have a secret life with God, a private life with God? Because I'm gonna tell you what, the reward of knowing him is found there. Right? There, there's something beautiful about the corporate gathering when we're all worshiping. This is great. But all of you can know him secretly. When I worked construction years and years ago, I, I drove a water truck and then I would drive a truck that would pull a backhoe. And during those years, many times during my lunch break, I would just go to my vehicle and I would sit down with a little Bible that I had, a little Bible that fit in my back pocket. And I would just spend that time reading my Bible and praying. And then I had a little, this is back in the day when they had those little micro cassettes. I had a little micro cassette recorder and then I would preach my first sermons into that micro cassette recorder. And I would sit there, that was my secret, my, my truck was my secret place with God. What's your secret place? You need a secret place. That's where we know him. That's where we look on him. And I'm going to tell you, you're not always going to experience goosebumps and it's not always going to be like, wow, that was amazing. Sometimes you're going you're gonna to have a time that it doesn't seem like much happened. But the scripture, who, the scripture says, but your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And what does that mean? There's going to be a quality about your life. There's going to be a presence on you. There's going to be something about you that when people encounter you, Something different is going to be there, and that difference is God. Amen? That's a cue. You realize that's my cue, right? I just have to tell you a really funny story. When I was preparing this message uh, here on Wednesday, I was upstairs in an office up there, and I was right at a point in the message where I was thinking about these things in the private room, secret life. And uh, all of a sudden I heard music. And I, I thought it was worship music. And I realized out the window, right down below me, I walked over to the window and I looked down and there was a person sitting in their car. And they had music going. 
And I immediately thought, oh, it's somebody from our church. And there, it was around lunchtime. They're, they're, they're taking their lunch break and they're having a private time with God. And I'm right in the middle of preparing this. So I'm like, this is so cool. Thank you, Lord. So I, I left the office and I walked down. I went out the back door and I walked around to the side. I walked over to their side window because, you know, if they're having a devotional time with God, I need to interrupt it. <laughs> and I go over to the window and I look in the door and there's a dude I don't recognize. And he rolls the window down. I'm like, hey, what's up? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were somebody from our church and you were just over here maybe, you know, spending your time with God at lunch or whatever. And he goes, no, no, I'm just sitting here. I work right over here, and I like to sit here in the shade because there's shade here during my lunch break, and, um, and I was getting ready to watch my show, and I said, what was it you were listening to? Oh, Blink-182. <laughs> nice meeting, and I walked away, and I just, anyway, I thought it was really funny. So anyway, that was not a good illustration for a private time with God. <laughs> I'm going to read quickly through my other points and then I'm going to close. You see, the scripture says here that God knew Moses and God knows you by name and God favored Moses and God has favored you in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear that. God knows you by name and he favors you. You know, God's the only person who can treat all of his children like they're his favorites and they'll all feel that way and know it's true. I'm his favorite. Amen. Thirdly, those who would know God more want to know his ways. What are his ways? His ways are his character, his attributes. You know how it is when you're married for a long time to your spouse, you get to know their ways, right? You get, you get to know their rhythms, the way they look at life, the way they approach things what makes them happy, what makes them sad, what makes them mad, right? You know, you get to know their buttons, don't you? How to push those buttons, right? You get to know their ways. And knowing God's ways are getting to know His character. And He wants you to know His ways. And that His presence, He, he told Moses, my presence will be with you to accomplish my will and give you rest. This is really important because a lot of us, what we don't understand is so many of us are striving so hard in our jobs and as parents and in all the things we're striving so much and we're working in our own energy and we're working out of our own wisdom and we're drawing from our own virtue and it just we're tired all the time. I'm not saying that you won't be tired even if you have a close relationship with God, but what I am saying is if you'll make your secret life with God a priority, so much more of what you do will come out of the overflow of that relationship. See, Moses had to go into the promised land. He didn't get to go. That's another story. Joshua did. But when he went into the promised land, it was God who went before them and dealt with all of their challenges, all their enemies. They didn't have to do all the fighting on their own. They got to participate, but they didn't have to do all the fighting on their own. Why? Because God's personal presence was with them. If we will understand that God's personal presence is with us and we'll, we'll, we'll make nurturing that relationship key in our life, we'll find that a lot of the challenges and God's will for us and where we go and how we get there and how we accomplish it, we'll find that it's done. He'll do things that we can't do for ourselves. Amen? And again, this isn't magic. 
It doesn't mean that you won't suffer and it won't be difficult, but what it does mean is you'll find that a lot of things that you used to have to do for yourself, God has taken care of behind the scenes because you've spent time with Him. You still love me? I'm almost done. God's presence alone is what will give us true success in life because true success is knowing Him and making Him known, right? God's presence alone is where we find our identity. Moses understood something, Israel and Him their identity was based in God's presence being with them. So many of us are looking for identity in our work. We're looking for identity in our relationships. We're working for, looking for identity in everything except God. And yet human beings were created to live on the fuel of God and find their personhood in relationship with God. So you will finally really begin to like who you are when you begin to see yourself in God and realize He made me, He created me, and I am the person I am because He willed it. And so, Lord, I'm going to be, I'm going to rest in who you made me. Quit comparing myself with others and start finding who I am and my value in you. Amen? God answers yes to those who love and know Him. You know, it's beautiful in this story, but over and over again, He just says yes to, to Moses. Yes, and the last yes is yes, you can see my glory, but it's going to have to be veiled because you can't take all of it but I'm still going to give you a peek. And then those who want to know God more are never satisfied with their current knowledge of God. Now, I'll hear some people say, never be satisfied, never be content, and I don't agree with that. I think that we're called to live in contentment. Let me tell you what we're called to live in contentment with. We're called to live in contentment with the life that God's given us, our resources, whatever's there, and not to continually be dissatisfied and unhappy with what we have and what we've been given and our, our bodies and our minds and always comparing ourselves. That, that is a prescription to live a miserable life. And discontented, disillusioned people are constantly miserable. But I will tell you something you are called to never be satisfied and content with, and that's your knowledge of God. Never be satisfied. You can always go deeper.